I'm going ahead and calling it on this episode. I do not recommend listening to this if you have a sensitive stomach. There will be talk of sexual assault toward children, self-abuse, mutilation, cannibalism, actually probably all of the bad things anyone could ever do. This episode is not recommended to play around children. While I do try to keep things pretty family-friendly, this case just is not that. It will probably mess you up, to be honest. I haven't eaten red meat since researching this case, if that tells you anything. So go ahead and just pause this episode and go grab your favorite comfort items, because you will more than likely need them. But welcome back. And if you're here for the first time, welcome to Crime and Theory, a podcast dedicated to everything outside the parameters of normal. I am your host, Ashley. Oh, and there's a website now? Like, for this show. Just... So, you know, it's crimeintheory.com, spelled exactly like the podcast is spelled. I post shorter stories on there, and I'm kind of working on getting the episodes up in blog format for your personal entertainment. Anyway, this week I will be telling you a lot about Albert Fish, the Brooklyn Vampire. Let's get started. Today's sources are History.com, CrimeMuseum.org, SerialKillerShop.com, AllThat'sInteresting.com, and Ranker.com. And remember, you've been warned. This horrific excuse for a human person was born on May 19, 1870, and was originally named Hamilton Howard Fish. His dad, Randall, was 75 years old when he was born, so for the most part, Albert, or Hamilton rather, grew up without a dad. I don't know how old Randall was when his other kids were born, but Albert was the youngest. Randall died by the time Hamilton slash Albert was five years of age. As to how Hamilton became Albert, it's actually a pretty simple explanation. Kids picked on him pretty harshly in school, and they would call Hamilton ham and eggs. Honestly, what kid wants to carry that around with them? So he just took the name of a dead brother. Totally normal. No problems here. So once Randall died, Albert's mom, Ellen, wasn't able to take care of her kids. So she did what any mom of the time would do. She surrendered them to an orphanage. And in all sincerity, I doubt that it was an easy choice to make, but she had to make sure they were taken care of while she tried to get on her own feet in order to take care of them herself. And I know she thought that they would be taken care of. And I mean, on a basic level, I guess they kind of were. They were fed, given a place to sleep. The bare necessities, basically. But there was absolutely no human kindness in this place. St. John's Orphanage is the place that began to shape Albert into the monster that he became. He was frequently physically abused, and the caretakers would even have children abuse each other. And instead of weakening Albert's resolve, it strengthened it in the worst way. Albert realized from a very young age that he liked being subjected to pain, and since he associated pleasure with pain, Albert later found it to be sexually gratifying. He said, quote, I was there till I was nearly nine, and that's where I got started wrong. We were unmercifully whipped. I saw many boys doing many things they should not have done. End quote. Which says to me that after he grew up, he knew what he was doing was wrong. 
he could differentiate between right and wrong, which is, it just makes it that much worse. And if what was posted on allthatsinteresting.com is true, Albert actually came from a family already known for mental illness. He supposedly had a brother in an asylum, he had an uncle that was diagnosed with mania, and his mom regularly suffered from visual hallucinations. None of this made a good formula for a stable adult, especially in the day and age where we didn't have things like medication for mental illness. Now, Ellen did finally find a job. It was actually a government job, and she was able to retrieve her children from the orphanage. But unfortunately, the damage had already been done to Albert. I mean, no hate to Ellen, though. Like I said, I'm sure she was doing her best. I'm not a parent, but I know parenthood can be full of really difficult choices. And it was a choice she had to make. Albert was actually home for a couple of years, and I don't know if he exhibited any symptoms of his mental depravity in that time span, but when he was 12 years old, he started up a relationship with a local telegraph boy. Now, shockingly, Albert didn't corrupt this boy. It was actually quite the opposite. The boy further corrupted Albert by teaching him... Put that chip down, please, because I'm about to say something that will make you wretch. He taught Albert to eat and drink human waste, and that is the nicest way possible that I can put it. And the worst part is that this isn't the worst of it. Albert started growing up, of course, and with that comes puberty and sexual awakening, as it does for everybody. Albert spent his weekends doing wholesome and well-rounded things, like playing basketball in the park with other kids. I'm kidding, of course, otherwise we wouldn't be here. He actually spent his weekends visiting local bathhouses to spy on young boys undressing, like the total creeper that he was. Oh, and did I mention that he also liked to read the classified ads put out by women looking for a life mate? So he would actually respond to these poor unsuspecting women with disgusting and vulgar letters full of obscenities. And keep in mind his love of letter writing, because that will come back later. It'll come back to haunt us and to bite Albert in the butt. Fish wound up moving to New York by the time he was 20 years of age, and he made a living as a sex worker. Okay, fine, no judgment on that, but I absolutely will be judging him that it was during this career as a sex worker that he began raping young boys. This entire story is just a downward spiral with absolutely no end in sight. Now, it's pretty clear that whether Albert was full-on gay or bisexual, he clearly preferred males. But remember, this is around the turn of the 20th century in America. So when Albert's mom realized that he wasn't dating any nice young women, she arranged a marriage for him to a one Anna Mary Hoffman, who was nine years younger than Fish. And even though Albert did prefer males over females, he wound up having six children with this woman. So he clearly kept up appearances as a husband and a family man. At least he kept up a good front for a while. I mean, he even got a job as a house painter in order to provide for his family. Now, that didn't stop him from continuing to rape young boys, of course. And this freak seriously got away with ruining the lives of so many people for so long. And the heinous act of raping young boys still wasn't enough. He at some point became fascinated with sexual mutilation. He claimed that it was because once a male lover took him to a wax museum where there was an exhibit depicting a bisection of a penis. Now, this was before 1910, and he was still married to Anna Mary. I'm just trying to give you a timeline here. 
It's not surprising that he carried on extramarital affairs, given that his marriage was mostly a cover anyway. But in 1910, when Albert was about 40 years old, Albert started up a relationship with a 19-year-old boy, really, named Thomas Kedden. Albert had been working in Wilmington, Delaware at the time. Now, it's said that the relationship may not have even been consensual at all, and Thomas may have even had an intellectual disability. Fish took this young man to a farmhouse where he tied him up and tortured him for two weeks. And by the time the two weeks were over, Thomas was missing half his penis. Supposedly, Fish had actually planned on killing Thomas and carving him up to later consume. But the hot weather was what stopped him. Albert didn't want the meat to spoil. Gross. So instead, he poured peroxide on Thomas's penis, put Vaseline over the wound, and then put a rag over that. He handed Thomas $10, kissed the boy goodbye, and just left him there. Fish said, quote, I shall never forget his scream or the look he gave me, end quote. And that is the last we ever hear of Thomas Kedden. Like, seriously, nobody seems to know what happened to this boy. But it brings up the question, did Thomas Kedden actually exist? I don't know. Now, time passes with fish still being a horrible excuse for a person, and then 1917 rolls around. A man named John Straub had previously rented a room from the Fish family in their house. Well, little did Albert know that Anna Mary actually began carrying on an affair of her own. So the two ran off together. John and Anna Mary waited until Albert was off at work, and they took all of the furniture and left Albert with the children. Which is a pretty crappy thing to, like, leave your kids, but other than that, I get it. Albert came back to find the home totally empty. He wasn't very happy about it, of course. So it was cool for him to have affairs, physically mutilate people, and destroy human lives, but his wife fell in love and ran off, and that was too far? I mean, I'm not one to support extramarital affairs at all. Neither one were in the right on this, but I'm just making a point that this man literally did the extreme of everything horrible in life, and all she did was run off with someone that she loved. That was the bad thing. All right. Now here's the kicker. Shortly after the couple fled the scene, they actually came back. Anna Mary was begging for Albert to give them a place to stay, and Albert relented in giving his estranged wife a home again, but Straub was not welcome in the home at all. I can kind of understand that, but not from him. Well, Anna Mary snuck Straub in anyway, and she hid her lover in the attic. She would actually sneak off to see him, and she would sneak him food so he could survive. But Albert did inevitably find out. And instead of kicking them both out, he simply said Straub had to leave. Anna and Mary could stay. But she did exit the scene with her lover yet again, and that's the last we hear of them. Anna and Mary and Albert Fish never legally divorced, but Fish quote-unquote got married two more times anyway. However, neither of these unions lasted for long. Gee, I wonder why. And let me just throw in that I am definitely giving you a full abridged version in order to keep this as clean and straightforward as possible, because I do not want any of you to give up your diet if you do indeed eat meat, okay? This is, again, about to get worse. I can't stress that enough. But that's when Albert started acting weird-er than his usual self. 
Remember how his mom supposedly suffered from visual hallucinations? Well, apparently Albert suffered from auditory ones around this time, and he began practicing self-harm. I'm not sure exactly when this happened specifically, but at one point he wound up wrapping himself in a carpet. Why? Because John the Apostle told him to do it. So not only was he regular crazy, he was religious crazy as well. And that's not a knock at religion. Anybody can practice whatever they want. That is totally your prerogative and that doesn't make you crazy. When you start hurting other people or yourself in the name of your religion, that's too far. Now, final warning before I get into the self-harm portion, okay? Are you still there? Great. Albert liked to play with needles. He would actually stab them into himself, but not just anywhere. No, no, that would be too simple. He would actually push these into his groin region. He would sometimes push them so deep into himself that he would lose these needles. It was later revealed after an x-ray that he had lost almost 30 needles inside himself. Now, whether it was the front of his groin region or between his rectum and his testicles, which was another source reporting, it doesn't really much matter because the point is that he genitally mutilated himself. Albert also enjoyed the practice of self-flagellation. He kept a wooden paddle studded with nails that he would actually use on himself. And I found on multiple sources that he would soak a wooden dowel in lighter fluid and insert it into his rectum before setting it on fire. The self-abuse was bad enough, but then he brought his kids into it. Now, he didn't abuse them as far as I could tell, but he did have them abuse him. He would even get their friends involved and have them hit him with said paddle. And of course, I'm sure this fueled his sadomasochistic, sexual, pedophilic depravity. Because, I mean, he was being physically abused by children. What a freak. Now, on top of the self-abuse slash masochistic, sadomasochistic behavior, he also started having some bizarre cravings, if you will. Like raw meat. I mean, actually, he had a craving for human flesh, as we'll later find out, but he would prepare full-blown meals made of just straight-up raw meat. This behavior did not go unnoticed, of course. I mean, I don't know if it was Albert himself or someone else who saw something was wrong, but he was evaluated in psychiatric hospitals on multiple occasions. Remember, we're in the early 1900s right now, and mental health wasn't as understood then as it is now, so these doctors failed him and society. They deemed him completely sane. And they let him just wander on back out into the real world to wreak havoc. And of course he just kept getting worse, because I mean, why wouldn't he? By 1919, old Fishy Boy was almost 50 years old and had taken his dark desires to an entire new level. See, he had started collecting torture devices and kept a meat cleaver, a handsaw, and a butcher knife handy for his work. He started targeting young men who he thought wouldn't be missed by society. Now, that's to say he was targeting young black men and young men with intellectual disabilities. He would even pay other kids in the neighborhood to catch these people. He was a disgusting freak, a racist, ableist, disgusting freak by the looks of it. He would supposedly offer them lunch and have them wait on his bed while he prepared it. 
it was under his bed or mattress, whichever, that he kept those torture devices. Now, according to Fish, he had taken to stabbing these young men. But here's the thing, like the Thomas Kedden story, Fish made a lot of claims after his arrest. And these stories he told were never quite verified. We just have his word to go on. So we have the choice to either take him at his word or doubt his allegations. But whether or not he physically did these things, he at least thought of them, which says gross to me. By 1924, his auditory hallucinations had become so much worse. By this point, he fully believed that God was commanding him to torture and murder young children. And goodness, guys, this is your final warning before the worst of the worst happens, okay? In July of that same year, Fish was wandering about, probably on the hunt for his next victim, or his first victim, depending on how you look at it. He came across Beatrice Keel, who was playing on her family's farm. Her parents were awesome because her mom noticed Fish lurking, and she noticed he was being a general creep, so she got up and chased him off the property. Well, later that night, that rodent Fish came lurking back to the farm and slept in the barn. So weird. Well, Hans Keel, Beatrice's dad, also chased him off. They literally saved their baby's life. Now, the next potential victim was Cyril Quinn. Fish had already been sexually abusing this boy, okay? Well, remember the torture devices and how he would lure boys in with the promise of lunch? Well, Cyril was one of those boys. From what I gather, he was waiting on the bed for the lunch and somehow found Fish's torture devices. Well, the kid freaked out and ran away. Good on him for realizing something was totally off here and that he needed to get out of there because that saved his life. Then there was sweet 18-year-old Edward Budd. He was the original intended victim in this next story, but you'll soon learn Fish had a change of plans. Edward was eager to get out into the workforce and to help his parents provide for the family. Good on him. So he put out a want ad. Well, unfortunately, Fishy Boy read that paper and he came up with a plan. He got dressed, presented himself as a harmless grandpa figure, and he took on the alias of Frank Howard. He called upon the Bud family with a job offer for young Edward. Edward had a friend named William that was also looking for work. Well, what a happy coincidence because Frank Howard conveniently had openings for both of them at his farm. He would pay them $15 a week, which is roughly $260 a week today. And Frank Howard told them the sob story of how he had six children and his wife had left them so he could really use the help. Frank Howard left that day telling Edward that he would be back in a few days' time to pick up the boys to begin their work. Those few days passed and Frank Howard did not show up as promised. They dodged a bullet, right? No. He sent a handwritten note explaining that he would still be in touch, but it would be a few more days still. Fish had already made up his mind that he was going to pick these boys up, kill them, and eat them. Remember the craving of human flesh thing. Raw meat just wasn't cutting it anymore, apparently. As promised this time, Frank did show back up. The family invited him in and asked him to even stay for lunch. It was during this visit that he set his predatory sights on 10-year-old Grace Bud, the younger sister of Edward. 
As luck would have it, Mr. Howard had a birthday party to attend for his niece and asked the Bud family if perhaps Grace would like to join him. The Bud family said yes, of course. This Mr. Howard was a kind, gentle old grandpa. Why wouldn't they say yes? And that's not a knock at the Bud family. He seriously had fooled them so thoroughly that they were just willing to let their kid go off with the strange man. Howard took Grace by the hand, left the Bud home, and she was never seen alive by her family again. Time passed. The rest of the day did, in fact. And Mr. Howard had not returned with the Bud's daughter. Mr. and Mrs. Bud did report their daughter as missing, and the police searched, but to no avail. It would be another six years before the ball got rolling again on this investigation. Of course, they wouldn't find a Frank Howard, because Frank Howard didn't exist. At some point after the disappearance of Grace Bud, four-year-old Billy Gaffney vanished while playing with his neighbor, who was also named Billy. When police came to investigate, neighbor Billy said that the boogeyman took Billy Gaffney. The police, of course, ignored this statement because the boogeyman doesn't exist, right? But how right little Billy was. Then there was eight-year-old Francis McDonald. Francis was actually playing on the porch under his mom's supervision when they saw a creepy man walking down the street and muttering to himself. Francis's mom didn't report anything because nothing had really happened. I mean, it's not illegal to be a complete creep. But later that day, Francis was playing in the park with some friends. His friends saw him walk into the woods with an older, gray-haired man. And then, before they knew it, Francis was missing. When the family finally realized that Francis had vanished, they organized a search party. They found the boy hidden away under some branches in the woods. I mean, another source had actually said he was found hanging from a tree, but either way, he had been horribly beaten and strangled with suspenders. And he had been sexually assaulted. Of course, they didn't know it was Fish specifically, but this man, who happened to be Fish, was at that point, dubbed the gray man from this incident when witnesses said that the man they saw looked faded and gray. The manhunt began for Fish, but he was in the wind. This man was always in the wind. Years passed before any clues in any disappearance showed up. In November of 1934, a letter arrived at the home of Edward Budd and his parents. Mrs. Budd was illiterate, so she couldn't read the letter. That meant it was up to Edward to relay the message. And I'm only going to include some excerpts here. If you want to research this case and completely destroy any appetite you have for the rest of your life, by all means, go for it. Read the full letter. But I'm trying to keep this as clean as possible. It says, quote, On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street. Brought you pot cheese, strawberries. Side note, pot cheese looks a lot like cottage cheese if you didn't know, because I sure didn't. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her on the pretense of taking her to a party. You said yes, she could go. End quote. And this part of the letter feels a little like he's trying to swing the blame on them just for saying yes. After leaving Grace's home with her, he bought a one-way train ticket for her, and he took her to a house where she played outside and picked wildflowers while he went up to the second floor and stripped down to nothing. Quote, I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. 
I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run downstairs. End quote. This poor baby immediately went into survival mode. Ten years old, and her life was snuffed out. Quote, I grabbed her, and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked. How she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death, then cut her into small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not her, though I could have had I wished. The Bud family, of course, reported this to police, giving them the letter as evidence. And it was this letter that ultimately led to Albert Fish's arrest. See what I mean? His letter writing came back to bite him in the butt. Police took the letter seriously, as they should, and the parts of the letter describing the murder itself were proven to be fact. But the part involving cannibalism could not be proven, however. I mean, it had been six years. But the paper the letter was on held a very important clue as to who had written it. It had the emblem of the New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association, or the NYPCBA, on it. Police required all members of the association to turn in a handwriting test to compare the writing to. Eventually, a janitor actually came forward admitting that he had taken some of the paper, because, I mean, honestly, who doesn't like to take office supplies every now and again? And he had left them at the rooming house he had previously stayed in. The police interviewed the landlady of this rooming house, who confirmed this to be true, and an old man matching the description of the gray man had been living there, and he had only checked out a few days prior to this interview with the landlady. Of course, this tenant was identified as Albert Fish. Also in this interview with the landlady, the tenant, Albert, had wanted her to hold a letter for him that would be arriving soon from his son. So detectives actually did the smart thing, and they intercepted this letter at the post office. Then they waited, and then when the landlady contacted them to let them know when Albert was coming to get the letter, they showed up. And that is how Albert Fish was finally caught. Then, after the arrest, Fish confessed to murdering Francis McDonnell as well. He confessed to also attempting to castrate the boy, but bailed when he heard people coming. And he wrote a letter to his lawyer confessing to the killing of little Billy Gaffney. I really don't want to read this in full detail, so like in the previous letter, I'm just going to be censoring it some and giving you excerpts. Quote, I took tools, a good heavy cat of nine tails, homemade, short handle, cut one of my belts in half, slit these half in six strips about eight inches long. I whipped his bear behind till the blood ran from his legs, end quote. And he goes on to tell his lawyer how he cut off pieces of Billy's face. Quote, I stuck the knife in his belly and held my mouth to his body and drank his blood, end quote. Right there is exactly how the Brooklyn vampire became such an adequate name for this freak. He then proceeded to tell his lawyer how he made a roast out of Billy's lower region, and a stew from the pieces of his face and stomach with vegetables. He gave the recipe for how he prepared the roast as well. Quote, I never ate any roast turkey that tasted half as good as his sweet little fat behind did. End quote. 
allegedly, or at least according to Fish, it took him four days to consume Little Billy. He said how good part of his most private areas tasted. Albert Fish earned the title of the most vicious child slayer in criminal history. The trial began on March 11, 1935. His defense pleaded innocent by reason of insanity, giving the auditory hallucinations as evidence. The jury saw through all of that crap, though, and his attitude during the trial was said to be calm and collected. After 10 days of trial, the jury came back with the verdict of guilty. Keep in mind, this trial was only for the murder of Grace Butt. He was never tried for any other murder, even though he had confessed to more than one. And even though it would have been nice to see him face trial for his other murders, at least this trial had a good outcome. He was sentenced to death by electric chair. And on January 16, 1936, the executioner flipped the switch, ridding the world of Albert Fish once and for all. His lawyer said that he had actually written him one final letter, and it was so grotesque and full of obscenities that he would never release the letter to the public. And that is it. I mean, that's not it. Obviously, there is way more to this case, but I'm trying to keep this show as clean as possible. Mostly because I don't use obscenities myself on this show, and if you really, really want to know, just Google it. You'll find it pretty easily. But Albert Fish's reign of terror finally came to an end. It's just too bad it took as long as it did. So stay safe this week, guys. Trust no one. I don't care how unassuming and harmless they seem, don't trust them. Especially don't trust them with your children. And as always, don't get haunted. I will see you guys next week, hopefully with something a little more lighthearted. <laughs>